0: You either die the hero or live long enough to become the villain. It's a wonderfully crafted line. Louis the Sun King had emerged from the Fronde, having won the game of -of tug-of-war with Parliament for control of France. He quickly reshuffled the world of French politics in order to establish absolute monarchy within his nation. His twin loves of warfare and glory led him to humiliate the enemies assembled against him in order to expand France's overseas empire. Had Louis' time on earth ended around 1680, his story would have been told as a true hero's tale, with the Sun King playing the role of historical heir to the glory of Charlemagne. But Louis achieved the peak of his power when he was merely 42 years old. Rather than departing the stage in glory... He would continue to rule France until he reached the age of 76. The next 34 years would not only turn Louis into a villain, it would set France's historical monarchy on a collision course with a democratic revolution that would change the world forever. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This episode is the final in a series of five regarding Louis XIV, The Setting of the Sun King. Louis's downfall is pretty easy to explain, as it comes down to three simple factors. First, he never learned from his prior mistakes in warfare. His continued obsession and love of war spiraled the nation catastrophically downward, resulting in France having to vacate its position as a global hegemon. During this time period, he continually showed poor judgment in which nations he supported, as well as those that he antagonized. The second reason for his downfall was his inability to learn to live within his economic means. His spendthrift ways hastened France's decline by limiting the nation's future flexibility in order to satisfy his immediate self-gratification. The third and final reason that the sun set on Louis' unprecedented rule was because of his increasing intolerance towards other faiths. His inability to set aside core differences in the belief systems held by his constituents meant that France lacked internal social cohesion, an essential ingredient for a nation's stability. When combined with the longevity of his rule, each of these three problems meant that France's next generation of leaders, ...were being set up to fail. We'll begin our examination of the fall of the Sun King... ...by first continuing to look at Louis' wars against his European neighbors. Our prior episode looked closely at two of his advances... ...along France's eastern border. His first incursion against the Spanish Netherlands terrified Europe so much that England flipped sides in order to join up with Spain and Sweden in order to force France to stop. Still, despite backing down, Louis walked away with a number of territorial gains that would be quickly used to launch a second invasion, this time designed to punish the Dutch, who had publicly alleged that the Sun King was devouring countries in what appeared to be a never-ceasing quest for a universal monarchy over all of Europe. This time, four nations joined together, forming the quadruple alliance of Austria, Prussia, and Spain coming to the defense of the Dutch. Again, Louis negotiated land gains for France, again making his actions financially worthwhile even if he was forced to negotiate gains that were lesser than what he intended at the start of the war. Louis had a weakness for glory. France printed countless medals celebrating his accomplishments, built monuments to his glory, and held triumphs through his cities as though he were an ancient Roman Caesar. Meanwhile, the rest of Europe circulated stories of French war crimes, oftentimes involving the indiscriminate bombardment of civilians some of whom had been burned alive while locked within their houses of holy worship. The French king's actions managed to create two enemies who would eventually get the better of Louis. The first of which was William III, the general in charge of the Dutch defenses. Like all rulers in this era, William was related to Louis as a first cousin once removed. He was also the nephew of Charles II, the King of England who was initially allied with the French at the onset of the conflict. The power of the combined forces of England and France had led Louis to assume that he would be able to win any and all disagreements without a fight. The opposite happened. The unholy alliance of the cross-channel rivals was such that their pure nations felt compelled to band together in order to counterbalance against Louis. When given an ultimatum on the eve of the French invasion, William responded with the famous words, that my country is indeed in danger, but there is one way never to see it lost, and that is to die in the last ditch. In other words, the general saw it as his destiny to both restore and preserve the liberty of Europe against the ever-growing ambitions of the Sun King, even if it resulted in his death. Leopold I, the Holy Roman Emperor, was Louis' second great nemesis to emerge from this moment in time. Leopold, a member of the ruling Austrian Habsburgs, was a cousin to Louis' wife. Although his official biographers chose to portray him as a man of education and industry, Clashes with France and its allies consumed the vast majority of his holy rule. Independently, Louis probably would have been able to defeat either man, but a huge part of his failure was in failing to understand how others would react to his policies. Having ascended to the throne at the age of four, The Sun King never grasped that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. His lack of understanding and foresight are odd, considering the fact that Isaac Newton was presenting his third law of physics at precisely this moment in history. Worse, William and Leopold's positions were improved because of whom Louis put his trust and faith in. William's station in life was dramatically altered by the fall of Louis' ally Charles II, the last of the Stuarts to sit on the throne of England. Charles consistently racked up personal debts at a time that the Parliament was particularly unwilling to bail him out. He was a weak ruler from the very beginning, only sitting on the throne after the death of Oliver Cromwell and the failure of his offspring to hold on to the power that he had grabbed. Although Parliament ultimately restored the monarchy, the tension between the two branches of government, which had resulted in the English Civil War, remained intact. Worse for the sitting ruler was the fact that the Great Fire of London destroyed more than 13,000 houses and nearly 90 churches. Despite destroying a quarter of the city, the fire wasn't quite large enough to halt the ongoing spread of bubonic plague by the city's rats. These problems would pale in comparison, however, to the fact that Charles had promised Louis that he would eventually convert to Catholicism, potentially restarting the previous wars of religion that had come because of the rules of Henry VIII and his daughter Bloody Mary. Because of the implications, it comes as no surprise that Charles kept his intentions to convert secret from both the public and Parliament. The deal was a part of the negotiations for Charles to lend England's navy to Louis' war against the Dutch. His faith was bought off in his life and the afterlife for the promise of an annual pension from the French in order to fuel his extravagant lifestyle the agreed-upon annual payment was set to exponentially increase once the king's public conversion occurred. As francophobia increased with each of Louis's acts of aggression, the English grew to fear their king's public dealings with Louis, as well as the habits that he had learned while living within the French court during his prior exile. Meanwhile, England's failure at subduing the Dutch warships during the war led Parliament to question their king's decisions and to look beyond Charles in an attempt to imagine what England could become without him. Unfortunately for his detractors, Charles and his wife had failed to produce a male heir to the throne, leaving James I, a staunch Catholic, as the presumed heir. To allay their fears, Charles arranged for his niece Mary to marry a man who was the polar opposite of the king, in that he was a successful warrior, a devout Protestant, and above all else, a man who despised France. He was William III. That marriage, occurring in 1677, would place William in line for the British throne. We'll come back shortly to that string in the puzzle. First, we have to look at the other ally of Louis that would become an albatross around his neck, namely the Ottoman Empire. Despite Louis's devout Catholic beliefs, the Sun King loved money nearly as much. Thus, he publicly maintained France's historic friendship with the Muslim Ottoman Empire through the trade cities of Marseille and Constantinople. Historian Karl Birchkart referred to the pairing as a sacrilegious union of the Lily and the Crescent. Beginning in 1534, the alliance ensured positive trade flows as well as military assistance when needed. Although it was used by propagandists against the French throne, the alliance had saved France more than once, simultaneously weakening the Catholic consolidation of power on the European continent. The ancient alliance became more valuable to Louis after his failed invasion of the Dutch had brought him into direct conflict with Leopold I and the Austrian Habsburgs. Louis invoked this alliance to oppose the Holy Roman Empire in a proxy war. The Turks advanced and captured Vienna before Leopold was able to form the Holy League, joining the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, Venice, and Russia to the Holy Roman Empire in order to retake the city in 1683. From that point, the war bogged down, with atrocities being committed on both sides of the conflict, which was characterized as European liberty on one side, and Eastern despotism associated with French absolutism on the other side. Although he was publicly aligned to the Ottomans, they were a mere tool in the Sun King's grand ambitions. He kept secret his assistance to Christian leaders within and around the Ottoman Empire, seeking leaders who could weaken his ally internally and establish staging grounds for an eventual conquest of Egypt and then the Ottoman Empire itself. If his plans had come to fruition, it is possible that Louis would have been able to conquer the entire Middle East and Northern Africa while simultaneously expanding the French Empire within the Americas and Asia. At this height of his power in 1683, Louis truly envisioned becoming king of the world. But it unraveled quickly, with England's King Charles II dying of mercury poisoning in 1685, On his deathbed, he asked his brother James to watch after his mistresses after he became king, before then apologizing to the court for taking so long a dying and repenting for his sins of adultery against his wife, before privately converting to Catholicism in order to fulfill his agreement with Louis. Happy to be rid of him, Parliament and the newly crowned King James II buried him at Westminster Abbey, with little public fanfare. James's Catholicism, which he learned from growing up in exile in Paris, proved to be an immediate source of conflict, as Parliament refused to pass decrees that would improve the Pope's standing within England. He also didn't make many friends within the English court as he was considered the most unguarded ogler of his time by one historian, evidently putting Seinfeld's George Costanza merely into runner-up position. As a consequence, James allowed his daughter Mary to be raised as a Protestant in an attempt to soothe the court. This, however, ensured his downfall as it gave the English an easy out after James had worn out his welcome. That wearing out happened quickly, with a rebellion resulting in James's request to establish England's first ever permanent standing army, which Parliament subsequently denied, triggering James to outlaw Parliament from ever meeting again during his reign. From there, things escalated quickly. The Protestant Church of England jumped into the fray, demanding that he change his faith, to which he raised the Church's taxes and mass-distributed his brother's arguments justifying his deathbed conversion before going on a public goodwill speaking tour, where, among other things, he suggested that it might be a good idea to have a law that mandates the locking up of every single black person. After fathering a son in 1688, the English took a peek at what their future beneath a failed Catholic dynasty looked like and decided to call in James's Protestant daughter from the bullpen. King James was quickly deposed of and sent back into exile in France by Queen Mary's husband, and noted Louis-hater, William III. This moment in 1688 stands out as a prelude to the fall of Louis' France. First, Louis refused to accept the authority of William as the King of England. Secondly, France viciously struck out at the Habsburg Empire in order to avert the collapse of his allied Ottoman Empire. The decision was made in his self-interest, as victory against the Ottomans would allow Leopold to square his forces up directly against Louis. As one might imagine, a Catholic nation attacking the Holy Roman Empire in order to preserve a Muslim kingdom didn't go over well in the European press. Louis' action united Europe against him with the English House of Commons proclaiming that Louis was the most Christian Turk, the most Christian ravager of Christendom the most Christian barbarian who had perpetrated on Christians outrages of which his infidel allies would have been ashamed. The resulting conflict that emerged became known as the Nine Years' War, and saw France once again facing off against a united European coalition. This time the group consisted of the Holy Roman Empire, the Dutch, England, Spain, Savoy, and Portugal. With fighting occurring as far as French colonial holdings in the Middle East, India, and North America, the Nine Years' War is considered by many to be the planet's first world war. Louis's initial thrust into Germany was designed to quickly knock that portion of the Holy Roman Empire out of the conflict. This French version of the Blitzkrieg became bogged down, though, with Louis immediately pivoting to a scorched-earth policy, laying waste to any land that was outside the borders of Alsace-Lorraine. The German kingdoms of Palatine and Baden were devastated by his actions. Far from sending a stand-down signal, Louis's actions worked to unite the German provinces. The Sun King miscalculated again in 1689 by sending the deposed James II to Ireland, hoping to spark a populist revolution which would restore James to the throne. But no such uprising occurred, and James, along with his detachment of 6,000 French soldiers, were thrown out of the Emerald Island by 1691. Historian Philip Mansell tells us that James fled from Ireland so fast the locals deemed him Seamus on Shaka, or James the Shitter, because he was believed to have dirtied his breeches in fright and flight. With their early returns, the coalition got greedy seeking to roll back all land gains that had been obtained since Louis' assumption of power. The Sun King tried to alter the course of the conflict by continually emphasizing the Catholic and familiar ties between Spain and France, while simultaneously supporting a Muslim nation versus the Catholic Holy Roman Empire. This was a continuation of the Sun King's baffling policy related to faith. Louis was a Catholic monarch, a true believer who worshipped, sang, and prayed before his people. He believed that the faith served to underpin his position, and thus maintaining the strength of the Catholic Church was foundational to maintaining his own. His grandfather, Henry IV, had begun life as a Protestant Huguenot, but had converted because, in his own estimation, France was worth a mass. Yet in this seemingly never-ending conflict, the French king alienated his own faith while simultaneously growing more intolerant of other faiths. During his rule, Henry had issued the Edict of Nantes, which had codified the rights of French Huguenots. While the group still faced instances of everyday discrimination, The worst of it had seemed to be over with the passing of Louis XIII's advisor, Cardinal Richelieu. Early in the Sun King's reign, the Protestant Huguenots were more or less tolerated within the French borders. Louis's tolerance extended even further than the Protestants, for among the Frenchmen as he was the first king of France to enter a synagogue in order to watch his subjects' worship. No one understands what happened for Louis to change his mind so completely, but most point to a change in his advisors, the first of which was his mistress-turned-second-wife, Madame de Montenon. She was a staunch Catholic who held firmly to personal hate regarding the Huguenots. The second advisor to change during this era was the exit of his superintendent Colbert a man who had previously encouraged the Huguenots to move to France in order to spur economic growth. He was replaced by Levois, who saw an opportunity to restart the French wars of religion in order to justify the size and budget of the military. Still others point to Louis' efforts directed at persecuting others as a last-ditch attempt to persuade the Pope to favor him over Leopold. As it is with most instances of religious bigotry, the incidences of discrimination began as mere inconveniences before ramping up and eventually escalating into acts of genocide. In 1661, Louis forbade Protestants from singing psalms in public. In 1678, Huguenots were barred from working certain jobs, attending certain schools, and receiving care at most hospitals. Churches that were located along popular thoroughfares were seized by the state, while other less-known congregations were pushed into even lesser-known suburbs. In 1680, Louis used the state to encourage conversions to Catholicism, offering the carrot of debt relief to complement the pressures of the prior years. But Louis wasn't done with the stick, as mixed marriages were soon banned and a force of 3,000 dragonnades, which were mounted infantrymen who carried guns that belched flames like dragons, were sent throughout the countryside in order to, quote-unquote, protect against a threat that never really existed. Things came to a head in 1685 with Louis's decision to revoke the Edict of Nantes. Many historians point to a desperate effort here for Louis to appease the Pope in the midst of Leopold's ongoing war with the Ottomans. But Louis went significantly further than was necessary if he was merely pimping his Catholic credibility. Having been warned that further actions against the Huguenots would result in massive damage to the French economy, Louis' piety got the best of him, and he proclaimed that he would rather save his citizens' heavenly souls than his nation's economy. He pursued a convert-or-die strategy, along with ordering the complete destruction of all Protestant churches and schools. Children were kidnapped from their parents in preparation for their conversion, and soldiers dragged old women into the midst of ongoing Catholic services by their ankles. Death didn't even provide a respite from the Sun King's effort to spread Catholicism, as Protestant graveyards were torn up and their possessions, which had been passed down through inheritance, were seized by the state. The king used the persecution of Protestants to reinforce his authority, Manziel describes the terror that ensued beneath this new Edict of Fontainebleau as hundreds of dragoons went systematically from house to house, telling Protestants to convert, or to go from now on to the galleys, or like prostitutes, to go to America. To ensure converts' presence at Mass on Sunday, there was even a roll call. The punishments were swift and certain. Nobles could be put in prison and their daughters in convents until their conversion was complete. Swimming against the stream carried increasing risks the further down the social ladder you climb, as Protestants caught meeting or praying together might be imprisoned, hung, or sent to the galleys. Removing oneself from the dire situation was difficult, as Louis had forbidden Protestants to leave without prior permission. Still, the Protestant diaspora that followed laid the groundwork for France's failures in the Nine-Year War. As the conflict progressed, Louis' violent reprisals against the Huguenots enabled William III to rally Protestant England against their former ally. Manzel tells us that the revocation of the Protestants' rights not only helped unite Europe against France, but also transferred French cultural, commercial, and technical leads to its rivals, as the group were the vanguards of globalization, who helped to create an international financial market. As a case in point, the Bank of England was originally founded in 1693 mainly to finance the war against Louis XIV. Seven directors of the National Bank were of Huguenot origin, contributing around 15% of its original capital. Huguenots created the first banknotes, and Jean Castiang, another Huguenot who managed to escape Louis' clutches, ran Jonathan's, a coffeehouse which posted current stock prices and exchange rates it served as the first-ever public stock exchange. These expatriates funded the war against Louis, while those that remained and converted represented an ever-present threat of rebellion within the kingdom. Thus, Louis couldn't be confident regarding his nation's internal stability while he was fighting England in the north, Spain in the south, the Dutch and the Austrians in the east. Shockingly, France's military forces held up in large part due to the fact that Louis maintained the continent's largest force of 13,000 cannons. As the time between victory parades lengthened, Louis began to micromanage the war, oftentimes demanding that his generals wait for his personal approval before proceeding. As desperation began to set in, The rate of war crimes along the front significantly increased. But in the end, the war was ultimately lost because of economics. The bloody conflict had reached a costly standstill. France's 400,000 man standing army was a massive drain on the nation's finances which had been further hindered by the expulsion of the Huguenots. The effort was proving to be unsustainable, as the king was forced to order that all silver in churches and at Versailles were melted down in order to raise funds to maintain his troops in the field. The king even temporarily shifted his personal party house of Marley into a makeshift military headquarter. French ships were continuously outnumbered and outgunned. The navy was reduced from 135 ships to a mere 80 over the course of conflict. Unable to keep up with the British shipbuilding industry, Louis began to cajole commercial ships into joining the war effort, thus eliminating France's ability to conduct international trade. With each action, Louis proceeded to cut off his nose to spite his face. Beginning in 1693, France began to experience a series of severe harvest failures that would continue through the French Revolution, due to what has become known as the Little Ice Age. Over the course of two years, as many as two million Frenchmen succumbed to food-related illnesses. This absurd number was the equivalent to 5% of the French population and represents more dead Frenchmen than either of the subsequent world wars. Faced with little hope, Louis performed one last offensive in order to gain the upper hand before entering into a peace agreement in 1694. The terms allowed Louis to claim victory, but it was clear to everyone that France's moment had passed. The 1697 Peace Agreement forced the Sun King to recognize William as the legitimate King of England and forced from him a promise that he would stop assisting James II's effort to return to England. Mansell writes of the treaty that so many cities were handed back that Parisians publicly stated that they were relieved that Paris was not among them. It was a peace which dishonored the king and the whole nation. It was also a peace that would only hold on for three years. What followed was the final war of Louis' long reign, Carlos II, El Hechizado, or the Bewitched, was the current king of Spain. The monarch was the result of 16 years of inbreeding that had managed to make his aunt and grandmother the same person. Born with the hideous Habsburg jaw, the Bewitched was unable to close his mouth and thus refrained from eating anything that was solid. Carlos's legs were so stunted they were unable to support his upper body, and his tongue was so grotesquely large that he could barely speak. He became king at the age of three, and in their false hopes to control him, his advisors refused to educate him. Thus, the near-mute king was also illiterate. But as proof that power and money can be as attractive as an individual's physical looks, Carlos managed to get married twice. Such a union was essential for a king with a history of near-fatal illness. Historian John Langdon Davies pointed out that of no man is it more true to say that in his beginning was his end. From the day of his birth, they were waiting for his death. Louis provided the first attempt at a solution to the predicament that the Spanish found themselves in. At least it would have been the solution if Carlos hadn't been born impotent and thus unable to produce children. Louis hastily arranged a marriage between his niece Marie Luis and the Spanish Habsburgs. Marie performed her duties as both queen and wife and by all accounts Carlos fell deeply in love with her. Still, she remained in a state of complete misery while living within the exceptionally private Spanish court, which refused her requests to open up her curtains in order to look out of her window, for fear that commoners might catch a glimpse of their queen. She failed to get pregnant and firmly informed French advisers that the blame was to be laid squarely at the feet of her husband. She remained queen for 10 years before succumbing to a severe stomach illness that was likely an appendicitis or side effect from the medieval fertility treatments that she was subjected to. Despite the obvious difficulties, Marie and Carlos were faithful to each other and the surviving king went into a deep and prolonged bout with depression. Marie, on her deathbed, claimed that while many women may be with his majesty, none will love him more as I do. Still, the need for an heir to such a sickly man was the highest priority. Louis had had his chance, and now it was time for his rival Leopold I to step up to the plate. The Holy Roman Emperor and fellow Habsburg provided his sister-in-law, Maria Anna, to the Spaniards. Maria's mother had managed to produce an astounding 23 children, with 18 surviving infancy. Due to the king's undiagnosed infertility, though, Maria was unable to bear forth a single child. In an attempt to make it clear to the court that it wasn't her fault, she forced Carlos to pass several grueling exorcisms. The fight over who would succeed Carlos II began before the young man went to the grave. Behind the scenes, negotiations between the three power brokers on the continent began in earnest in 1698, with Louis, William, and Leopold agreeing to secret treaties which divided the kingdom. Eventually, however, Leopold, who previously had opposed Louis's quest for a universal monarchy, began to express the motto of Austria es Imperia Orbe Universo, or Austria should rule the world. He tore up the secret agreements and argued that his younger son, the Archduke Charles, should inherit the entirety of Spain upon Carlos's passing. This bold action allowed Louis to put forth a legal argument that one of his children should be the legal heir to the Spanish throne. And thus the war of Spanish succession began. Leopold claimed the throne via marriage right. Louis's argument related to bloodlines. His first wife, Maria Therese, had been Carlos's sister. By lineage, the only way to maintain the family rule of Spain would be to choose someone of her surviving bloodline. Spain was torn, and arguments for each side consumed the final year of Carlos's miserable life. Manzel explains why Louis was able to prevail over Leopold on this issue, writing that, Despite three Franco-Spanish wars since 1635, many Spaniards came to think of France as the state most likely to maintain the territorial integrity of Spain's global empire. Many Spaniards like Louis himself supported the succession of a French prince on the ground that the Dauphin had the best hereditary claim, since his mother Maria Therese was the elder daughter of Philip IV, Carlos's father. Additionally, the historian points out that the unpopularity of Carlos II's second wife Maria Anna of Nuremberg and the failure of Austrian troops to prevent France taking Barcelona in 1697 also encouraged Spaniards to turn to France. Even the ambassador of Austria's ally England admitted as early as 1698 that most Spaniards would prefer a French prince their aversion to the queen having set them against all of her countrymen. It is scarce conceivable the abhorrence they have for Vienna. On his deathbed, Carlos changed his will and final testament to name Louis' 17-year-old grandson, Philippe of France, as heir to the throne. The only condition was that the boy renounce all rights to the French crown, thus agreeing to keep the two nations separate. Louis agreed to the terms, but he didn't intend to honor them. The moment that he chose to announce the news about Philippe shedding his given French name for the historical French designation of Philip V, Louis proclaimed of the mountains that separate the two nations the Pyrenees are no more. The belief was that the inevitable alliance between the Bourbon relatives would make France so strong that no one would ever again pick a fight with them. This is similar logic that explains NATO's Article 5's collective defense agreement. It is so impossible to imagine fighting the combined might of the US, England, France, and Canada that there is little to no danger to nations such as Iceland, Slovakia, or Lithuania. Louis, however, dramatically misread how his enemies would respond. Counterbalancing occurred immediately in preparation for what was the inevitable act of aggression emanating from King Louis. That irrational act came in 1700 with the sun-king publicly proclaiming that Philip, now the king of Spain, remained within the line of succession for his French throne, despite the fact that the boy himself had relinquished his rights and never shown any interest beyond being the best king of Spain that he could be. At age 17, King Philip depended upon his 13-year-old cousin wife to earn the goodwill of his new people. Although he continued to speak only French, he took in bullfights, Spanish cuisine, and partook in their conservative fashion trends. Louis reportedly believed that his grandson was weak for allowing others, particularly his Spanish wife, to hold influence over his decisions. Of course, influencing the young man's reign was exactly what Louis had intended to do himself. Philip, however, would never become his grandfather's puppet. But his unwillingness to push back against the Sun King aided in the perception of inseparability of the two nations during the first decade of the 18th century. French troops were stationed throughout Spain. French finance ministers went through the books in order to modernize the Spanish economy and Philip brought into his court 50 French servants, including his barber. These actions allowed Louis to continually prod at the backwardness of his southern neighbors. Had the insults remained only related to Spain, France might have avoided another costly war. But the Sun King was never known for his moderation. In 1701, James II, the former King of England, passed away. On his deathbed, the former monarch told his son to remain Catholic, obey his mother, and stick with the King of France. Louis was good to the boy, acknowledging him as James III, the rightful King of England, despite the fact that it was an open-handed insult to his old enemy, William III. He poked at William and Leopold despite never truly securing an unbreakable alliance with Spain. War was formally declared jointly on France and Spain by England, the Netherlands, and the Holy Roman Empire on May 15, 1702. It seemed as though Louis would have the upper hand. King William had passed away two months earlier, and the elderly Leopold would depart from this world in 1705. William had died without children, and Leopold had left behind only daughters. Louis, the longest-serving monarch in European history, at age 67, had managed to outlive his peers. Everything seemed to have fallen in line for the French, and Louis took the moment to brag about the size of his family, which had 23 grandchildren in it. But the tables quickly turned. The French army was ambushed and routed on the Danube. The Allies, arrayed against him, which had expanded to include Prussia, offered peace terms that Louis mistakenly refused. Although the Sun King didn't go on this campaign for the first time ever over the course of his lengthy reign, he micromanaged his army to death. Manzel details what went wrong for us writing that his lead general's fawning words to the king from the front help explain French defeats, as they wrote home that, Your Majesty understands war better than those who have the honor to serve you. manzel continues, France's military performance was weakened by its demographic and climatic catastrophes, such as the flight of the Huguenots and the loss of population in the winter of 1693-94. Allied soldiers tended to be stronger and better fed and disciplined. Moreover, they paid for supplies. Louis' troops, in contrast, pillaged their way across Germany, stoking the fears of francophobia. During his reign, his soldiers' average height diminished, reflecting the impoverishment of much of the French population. Defeat was also due to the superiority of Allied equipment. Only in 1703 had French infantry finally abandoned pikes and muskets for guns and pistols like their enemies. The quality of the king's cannon did not match the quantity. Splitting cannon barrels wounded French artillerymen almost as often as their cannonballs did the enemy. Officers made profits out of supplying guns of low quality. Historian Guy Roland concludes, The biggest weapons system the world had ever seen did not work. By 1708 entire French legions were surrendering to the enemy without firing a shot. They had lost their fighting spirit as Louis had been dealt a blow the likes of which his reign had never felt. Towards the end of 1708. France managed to make a slight comeback after relinquishing full control of the military to Louis-Joseph, the Duke of Venadome. Venadome was openly gay, which I mention for two reasons. First, it combats harmful stereotypes that all gay men are effeminate. Secondly, it shows that he was really good at what he did in order to rise up the ranks despite the barriers that his love life placed in front of him. Although it was illegal to be gay in France at this point in history, Louis tolerated it when the individual was either related to him or useful to achieve his own ends. It also helps if your king is incredibly vain and furious at the fact that his enemies were making victory medals that mocked him. These are true collector edition medals that showed the Sun King vomiting, defecating, and being devoured by dogs. Vendôme had turned the war around, but Louis was one of those leaders who couldn't stand someone else receiving the attention that he believed only he was worthy of. He attached two of his heirs to Vendôme as co-leaders of the French forces. Thus, the top of the chain of command for the French forces at times included King Louis, two generals, a minister of war, and two princes of the realm. The war once again turned against France as the bickering over who was in charge continued. In 1708, France lost the city of Lille. Rather than pushing to regain what had been one of Louis's grandest prizes from his previous wars, he sent 6,000 troops with James III to Scotland in a half-hearted attempt to retake the throne of England. It would prove to be a failure which isn't much of a surprise after you find out that the young man went off to war with a gold plate for his meals and a full orchestra for his personal entertainment. Ironically, France was temporarily kept afloat through the goodwill and acute business sense of Huguenot banker Samuel Bernard. As had been the case during the previous wars, France's budget could not sustain the effort. Mansell informs us that in 1703, receipts were 105 million livres, expenses 171 million. In 1706, expenses reached 196 million, while revenue had sunk to 53. By 1710, military and naval expenses and the loans needed to pay for them were absorbing more than 75% of the budget. France had created no equivalent of the Bank of Amsterdam or Bank of England to issue notes and help finance the war. The government avoided bankruptcy by short-term borrowing at disastrous interest rates and creating more political offices to sell. By 1708, government debt would reach 2 billion livres, and servicing it would absorb over 50% of government expenditure, 470 of 756 million livres. The historian concludes with the statement that Europe's triumph over France was not only militarily and diplomatic, but financial. but it wasn't all his fault. 1708 was also the low point for the Sun King's reign because of an 11 consecutive day streak when the temperature reached negative 15 below. The silk industry collapsed, bottles of wine froze and shattered, and the grain harvest was one of the poorest on record. Louis' second wife details the famine that occurred in her private letters. On April 8th, she wrote that the price of wheat is rising every day. Famine is universal. It seems that God wants to reduce us to the last extremities. April 29th. You think that it is better to perish than to surrender. I think that we must yield to force, to the hand of God who is visibly against us, and that the king owes more to his peoples than to himself. May 5th. At Marley you hear of nothing in this ravishing place but poverty. July 14th. Paris is very difficult to control. Bread is becoming more expensive there every day. We have seditions everywhere. August 26th. The greatest misfortunes have often had smaller beginnings. The question of wheat will make me lose my head. There are only a small number of meals between humanity and anarchy. Clever posters began popping up suggesting a revolution against the Catholic monarch. One included the prayer of, Our Father who art in Versailles, your name is not allowed. Your kingdom is no longer great, nor is thy will done by land or sea. Give us this day our daily bread, for we cannot buy it. The year of 1709 saw just 12 fewer food riots than would be experienced during the French Revolution in 1789. Louis tried to negotiate an end to the war at this point, but was unwilling to dethrone his own grandson, which, believe it or not, was the Allied demand at the moment. They actually believed that he would join them and march his forces into Spain in order to crown an Austrian ruler. It was too much for a man who at one point sought to rule the world. Still, he did pull back French forces and stopped the practice of having one of his ministers sitting in on Spanish council meetings, suggesting that he was willing to let his grandson lose the throne on his own. This arrogance by the Allies allowed Louis to make a comeback. The citizens of Lille were so repulsed by their new rulers that they rose up in insurrection and demanded a return to France. The Ottoman Empire came to their rescue with massive ships laden with grain, and Louis' court tightened their belt with the king issuing proclamations for the nobles to forego new gilt paint on their carriages and to donate the money to the war instead. Louis even stopped throwing parties, and forbade the citizens from getting him a birthday present for his 70th lap around the sun. Most importantly, a new tax was successfully levied upon all Frenchmen that earned an income, including the nobility and clergy. For the first time in years, the French soldiers were paid on time and had full bellies. From here, the Sun King played the nationalist card, With victories beginning to rack up once again, Louis headed to the negotiating table. The treaty became known as the Peace of Utrecht. Philip was allowed to retain the Spanish crown, but both Bourbon houses had to renounce all claims to the other's throne. This became critically important because the sons of Louis as well as grandsons were quickly disappearing as the head of their family was forced to attend far more funerals than he would have liked to. Indeed, Louis will be succeeded by his five-year-old great-grandson. England gained a commercial advantage by receiving Dunkirk as well as a number of port cities in Spain. Spain also lost land along the Amazon River, and France ceded land to the Iroquois and their British allies. Austria gained land throughout Central Europe. Manzel sums it up with the thought that UTEC was a victory for Europe and diplomacy. The defense of the freedom and the balance of Europe had been proclaimed as the reason for the declaration of war on Louis XIV in 1702. A utech, peace and calm in Christendom, through an equal balance of power, was restated as the political ideal for Europe. Peace did not bring about prosperity for Louis. Over the next five years, he was forced to attend more family funerals than weddings. Measles ran through the royal family, and the 74-year-old Louis began to run out of airs. His mind also began to dissipate, with aides recognizing signs of senility during moments of respite in 1712. The king even launched an investigation against his nephew, whose debaucherous ways were combined with a love of chemical sorcery. That nephew rose within sight of the crown, presenting a problem that Louis was unable to fix before his time came. The final sunset began on August 3, 1715, when he prematurely abandoned his routine inspection of the troops. The king suffered from complications arising from gangrene and diabetes. Nine days later, he reported that his stomach was on fire, and without an appetite, it appeared as though the flesh on his body had melted away. He began to fulfill his daily tasks in a wheelchair, including the chore and the lever. To his successor, his five-year-old great-grandson, he told him, "'My dear child, you are going to be the greatest king in the world.'" Never forget the obligation you have to God. Do not imitate me in my wars. Try always to maintain peace with your neighbors, to relieve your people as much as you will be able to, which I have had the misfortune to be unable to do due to necessities of state. The words were later written up and placed on the wall of Louis the Beloved's bedroom. His final words to the court were, I am leaving, but the state will always remain. It was a far cry from the claim that became permanently attached to the Sun King of, I am the state. His final breath came on September 1st, a day that was particularly popular among his British enemies, who had openly gambled upon Louis's day of death. Louis the Sun King had begun his rule with unprecedented opportunity. He had inherited the strongest country and army in Europe, flushed with the wealth that came in from a growing overseas commercial empire. But he was unable to get out of his own way. His tendency to micromanage things that he never truly understood as well as a long history of trusting the wrong people to manage the rest, left his nation bankrupt and the laughingstock of Europe. Rather than conquer the continent, he had managed to unite it against him. Louis came to believe that the point of war was war itself. His nation remained at war for 33 of the 54 years of his long reign, and the standing army arrayed by the Sun King consumed more than 50% of the nation's budget. Worse, nearly every single war fought was precipitated by Louis' actions. Thus, all were preventable. Manziel posits that the Sun King believed that his large number of enemies signified his strength rather than his unpopularity and lack of diplomatic skills sort of like a high school bully telling his mother that he is so popular because so many students know his name. We tend to look at the brilliance of the gold reflected by the thousands of mirrors that covered the walls of Versailles, but if we manage to squint past the brightness, we can see that Louis's reign was merely a glorious facade. Interested in inspecting everyone else's work, He never turned introspective towards his own existence. The personality cult that developed around Louis was devastating to the effective running of a modern nation. Historian Michael Farquhar makes fun of the ridiculousness of the court that developed. He describes a few of the characters within the sea of sycophants that called Versailles home. If Louis asked for the time, they replied that it was whatever time His Majesty desired. His superintendent of buildings would utilize wedges to leave the statues noticeably askew so that he could then compliment the king when Louis asked about their leanings. After the king developed a fistula and had to have surgery on his rectum, courtiers bribed doctors to perform the same task on them so that they would have something in common to talk to the king about. Farquhar leaves us with the thought that the French Beneath the Sun King invented a whole new spin on the fine art of kissing ass. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.